Thanks. Let's pray before we get started, okay? Father God, thank you for this opportunity to get up here, to, to speak your word, to read your word aloud, and, and to hear it in the context of your church. It's a great opportunity for us to be here. And so, I, again, I, I always pray this, but I pray that this week, once again, you would, you would just continue to sink that truth into our hearts, the fact that us being here is not some chance occurrence, it's not something that just happened, it's not an idea that we thought of that would be a good idea, but it's something that from the beginning of the world, from before the beginning of the world, you laid out these plans, laid out your plan for redemption in the world, and the fact that Christ has come and has offered himself to us, the fact that we're able to talk about him and talk about being in him and in that family is, is incredible. And I pray that that would not be lost here, that it wouldn't be lost on us, that we wouldn't see this as a, just a formal kind of thing that we do, that we add on to our lives, but we would see it as a, as a real part of defining who we are. I pray that this morning you would speak through me and say what needs to be said. I pray that it would be said in the way that it needs to be said, in a way that can be understood and appreciated. And I pray that you would cause us all to exult in you because of this word that you've given us. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would, you would touch our hearts and that you would cause us to take this and to treasure it, to understand it, to cherish it, and to be changed by it. Work during this time in spite of us. And in Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I... This is not at all related to the content of what we're getting ready to get into, but I listened this week to a John Piper sermon. I don't know if you know who John Piper is, but there was a time in my life when I listened to a lot of sermons because I work at a computer a lot, uh, so I have the opportunity to just sit there with headphones and listen to things, and I kind of got out of the habit of listening to sermons because for a while there I thought I was doing it too much, if that makes sense. Like, I'm listening to all this, but I'm not doing anything about it, if that uh, I don't know if you read the Bible and think that sometimes. So I stopped listening for a while, but I went back and listened to another John Piper sermon this week, and I was like, jeez. Listening to, because, because you see like the comparison. Here's, here's John Piper, who's been doing this for a while, who's pretty good at it. And, and then you, I, I couldn't help but kind of compare us, sorry, compare both of us to, to John Piper. And I was just... I was just thinking, wow, he does a really good job. But one thing that really stuck out to me is that hearing him speak, he did a, what I felt like was happening to me as I was listening to him is that it made me want to really exalt God. Like, and that, and I think that that's the, that's the point. It ought to be the point of preaching. It ought to be the point. Like, we want to gain an understanding. I want to be able to, to, to allow the Spirit to work through us so that you learn things. But I think that it ought, it ought to do more than just cause you to learn things. It ought to cause us to be, to be moved by the things that God has done, the things that he said, how he's worked through history. And, and I, I, the only reason I'm saying that is because I, I hope that that's the goal for, for me, for Tanner, for us as we're listening to this, that when you hear these things, you can't help but respond in some sort of way. Like it, you feel it like deep down. It's not something that you think, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work real hard to respond to this. But it's just, it awakens something in you that makes you say, wow, God is great. And he's done amazing things. And I pray that as, as we read the Bible, um, that that would be kind of our attitude. That we would, we would see this as amazing. Um, even, even when we're just talking about introductory stuff, we're going to be talking about a lot of history today. But just the way that God has worked these things out. Uh, is, is amazing. So I pray that we would, we would see that. Um, we are in Thessalonians today. So we've been jumping around a whole lot. Um, we have been doing some topical stuff. Some, some, we've been going through some short books over the last several weeks. 
Uh, we got out of Hebrews, which we took a lot of time to go through Hebrews. And then we said, why don't we, you know, take a few weeks and go through some different shorter series, things that we feel like we need to talk about, things that are kind of on our heart. Um, I hope that was helpful for you. We're, we're now going to enter into a little bit more of an extended look at another book. Uh, if you're a visitor here, then welcome, first of all. Um, one thing that we like to do is take the Bible seriously. Uh, we, we treat it as though it is the Word of God because it, it professes to be the Word of God. And it also is delivered up to us in a way that we have confidence that it is. And so with that confidence, we like to spend a whole lot of time just looking at this and, and considering it and taking it seriously and, and kind of sitting with this posture of being under it. Like we don't sit here and get to say, I don't like this part, so I'm going to take it out or that doesn't really make sense to me, so I'm just going to ignore it or Whatever we're not, we're not sitting in authority over it, kind of like Thomas Jefferson, who was like, miracle, nope, and just tears it out of the Bible. He says, impossible. Uh, that, that's not our posture. Our posture is one of, of sitting under it and saying, okay, whatever it says, we're going to deal with it. And that might be hard, uh, but, but we're going to take it seriously, and we're going to allow it to kind of decipher us, if that makes sense. Hebrews talks about how uh, the Word of God is living and active and that it cuts to our hearts. It cuts into us and it kind of discerns us. And so that's, that's our posture. And, and we're entering into 1st and 2nd Thessalonians uh, for the next several weeks. We're probably going to be doing this uh, through the summer. And then in the fall we'll do something new. Um, but we'll be in here for a little while. So we're going to be a little bit more detailed than maybe we have been with some of the overviews, some of the surveys of some of the other books. Um, so that being said, a lot of what I'm going to say today is just kind of intro, like dipping your toe in the water to see how warm it is or cold it is. We're just going to get into kind of the beginning here, and, and my challenge in doing something like that is to try to pull out also the exhortation, to pull out the applicable parts, because I want to give you the context and that sort of thing. So you'll have to bear with me as we, as we talk about context. If you're not like into history, then I'm sorry, you don't, don't switch off. <laughs> For the first few minutes, because we're going to be talking about some history stuff. Um, we just want to talk about how this came to be, how Thessalonians came to be in the Bible. Why are we reading Thessalonians? Why is it here? Um, I meant to look at the, the verse number or the page number. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one to follow through, because we're going to be reading the Bible, there are some on the bar back there that are extra and don't feel embarrassed. You can just raise your hand and Ben could run, run one to you if you need one. And he could help you find Thessalonians. All right. Well, if at any point you change your mind, he's back there. Okay, so Thessalonians, it's after Colossians. Maybe you know where Colossians is. Not a whole lot of people, the Thessalonians is not as well read, it seems like. You've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians in the New Testament. And we're going to talk a little bit about how this came to us. So this is another one of Paul's letters. Paul being an apostle. He wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, several different letters. And I don't want to assume that you know who Paul is. Um, so let me just talk a little bit about Paul. Paul was an, a Jew. He was very religious. He was a Pharisee. So what that meant is his life was religion. And he was really, really dedicated to it. He was really, really good at it. And when Christ came, he saw Christ as being in opposition to his Judaism. In opposition to his Jewishness. Because even though Christ was a Jew, he came and said that he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all these promises of salvation that God had given in the Old Testament. But Jesus came in a way that people didn't expect. He didn't meet everybody's expectations in the way that he did ministry. And so this was a hard thing for the Jews to comprehend. They said, Jesus, you're not, you're not doing what we expected you to do. So we don't really think that you're it. We don't think that you are who you say you are. And... After Jesus died and rose from the dead and appeared to all these people, lots of people started becoming Christians, started putting their faith in Christ. And Paul, as a response to that, said, no, no, we cannot have this. 
we are not going to allow this to become a thing because the Old Testament says that if we have these false teachers popping up and, and, and saying these heretical things, we can kill them. So that's the plan. We're going to go out. We're going to kill them. Um, so he, he is traveling around, persecuting Christians, putting them to death. We have an example of one where he stood at the execution in Acts 7 at the, at the stoning of Stephen. He's sitting there pretty much presiding over that event. And he is he's going through and he's, he's killing people. And, and he is zealous. You hear about zealots, like Jewish zealots. I don't know if you know anything about like Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, like in some of these... And he's like, yeah. Uh, some of these guys who were very, very protective of Judaism, and they're more than just protective, more than just defensive, they were offensive. They were like, we are going to, we're going to fight for this, and we're going to keep it pure, because that's what God wants. And it was like this very kind of Old Testament mindset. But when Christ came, he fulfilled the Old Testament in a way that nobody really expected. And, and that was hard. So... Paul goes on for, for quite a while opposing this message, opposing these Christians. And then you read about it in Acts 9. We're not going to read through all of Acts 9. But in Acts 9, uh, Paul uh, gets thrown off his horse, literally thrown off his horse. He's on his way to another city. And this light from heaven that is, he said was brighter than the sun comes and just knocks him down. And he hears this voice and it says this is this voice like thunder is coming to him and it says Paul or actually at the time sorry Saul he was Saul before he was Paul uh, Saul why are you persecuting me and he says who are you and he says I'm Jesus who you are persecuting and he he takes that event seriously his, his heart has changed <laughs> he he no longer he does not continue on the road to Damascus to go kill some more Christians he's blinded he has to have somebody come help him. Actually, a Christian, a Jewish Christian, which normally a Jewish Christian would not want to walk up willingly to Paul and say, okay, let me help you out here. Um, but God told him to, to go up and help Paul because he's blinded. And now he's relying on these Christians and the love of these Christians. And he, his whole life changes. He's a, he's a changed man. And he uses all of that, all those things that he learned, all the, all the religious things that he knew from the Old Testament. He now interprets those now in light of Christ and says, okay, it does add up. There's all these strands pointing from the Old Testament to what Christ has done. And, and this makes sense. And he starts going around and telling people about Christ now. So now he's no longer running around trying to kill people, but he's trying to save them, which is very, very cool. And that's why we have a good chunk of the New Testament. It's letters that he's written. So this, this is another letter to a church. Paul was separated by God as a missionary to the Gentiles. You can read about that in Acts 26. Uh, he, he understands his mission. He's given a defense before somebody else. And he says, when I was called, God called me to be a missionary among the Gentiles so that I, I would go out and I would reach them, that I would, t I would spread the gospel to them because this isn't just a Jewish thing anymore. Before, it was, the Old Testament was very much centered around Israel and that, them as a nation. And they were supposed to go out and, and be a light to the rest of the world. But it was very much like a Jewish identity thing. And, and what this is a big deal. He says, my mission is not going to be to go tell all the Jews about Jesus. My mission is going to be to tell the rest of the world about Jesus. And, and to let them know who he is and what he's done. And that now, this isn't just an Israel thing. This is, this is for the whole world. So he understands that as being his mission. So he's traveling around for a good chunk of his life. He's doing missions where he's just going from town to town in uh, the Roman Empire and telling people about Christ. So he, uh, he starts, in. you can read about it in Acts 13, at the beginning of Acts 13, uh, he and Barnabas, another pastor that's in the church with him, they are set apart. It says by the Holy Spirit. Like, this is interesting. It says the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to go do this ministry. So they leave. They're going out from Antioch Church, and they're going to go travel around. So that's, that's their first missionary journey. And it ends on a little bit of a sour note. Um, they go around to a bunch of towns. They see a lot of fruit. They're sitting at the end of it saying, man, wouldn't it be great to go back 
and to visit some of those churches, some of those people that we visited, and to encourage them further. And they said, yeah, that's a great idea. Barnabas says, I want to take this guy John with me. And John had been with them earlier, but he, he got caught up with other priorities. And, and he said, I'm out. I got to go do some things. Paul did not appreciate that move whatsoever. He said, are you in or are you out? And he says, I'm out. And Paul says, okay, well, then you're out. And Barnabas says, let's take John back with us to go encourage these other churches. And Paul says, I don't think so. He, he willfully removed himself from this ministry and, and said he's got to go take care of other priorities. Barnabas felt pretty strongly that they ought to come along, so they end up going different directions. Um, which, well, we don't have to get into the details of that. It happened. Uh, so then, after that, Paul grabs a different companion, Silas. Uh, and that's mentioned, I think, in 16, 15. Uh, at the end of... Acts 15, he talks about bringing Silas along with him. So he's got this new ministry partner. They're going to go to a new set of cities. He's going to keep traveling around. He gets this call from God. He has a vision from God saying, you need to go to Macedonia. It's this man who's inviting him, come to Macedonia. When he's thinking, I'm going to go over to Asia. That sounds like a good idea. But he gets this vision that says, no, why don't you go the other direction? So he does, and he takes Silas with him, and now he's traveling along to like Greece and that area, uh, Macedonia. He's, he's, he's touring around that whole area. Um, I don't have a map, so I end up doing this. Because <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking, it's right here. Okay. At the top of the Mediterranean. Sorry, that's not helpful. Um, so they, they visit several places. They, uh, they, just before Thessalonians, they go to Philippi. And this kind of ties into their reception in Thessalonica, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Over in uh, Acts 16, you can read about this. They were in Philippi, and they had successful ministry there. People were listening to the gospel. People were accepting it. Uh, and at, they come to a point where they see a girl, a slave girl, who is possessed by a demon and has this ability to divine things. So... Her master is using this, this unique skill set, not, uh, not had by many people. He's using this for profit. He's a capitalist. How can we make money off of this? Um, so he, he's, he's using her for this. But she follows them around and says, please have mercy on me. Please minister to me. And she does this for quite a while and then they, they turn around, and the Holy Spirit working through them, they, they cast out this demon in the name of Christ, and she loses that skill set, let's say. It's not, a skill set is not a great way to put it, because it was a demon, so that's very serious. Um, she loses this ability to do this. Um, and her owner, her master, gets infuriated about it. And it says... That he dragged them before the magistrates. I don't know if that's like literally he grabs them and drags them. Maybe he's a big guy and he's grabbing two people. I don't know. Um, but he drags them before the, the court, essentially. And, the, and they say, this guy is stirring up the whole city. He's telling us to obey some kind of authority that is not Rome. They're trouble. And the magistrate says, okay, tear their clothes off, beat them up, put them in prison. So that's what happens. They, they end up in prison. But what happens when they're in prison? Well, if Paul's not going to convert your, your citizens, he's going to convert your city workers, your prison, your, your prison guards. So he's over there ministering to the people in prison. He's singing songs. People are listening to him sing the gospel. So they, they hear his message. And then in the middle of the night, there is an earthquake. And just so happens that during this earthquake... All the doors in the prison open up and all the shackles on the guards or on the prisoners just fall off. And they're sitting there and they're like, all right. And the guard wakes up and he is freaking out because he thinks they're going to kill me if this whole prison gets out of here. So he wakes up and immediately it says he pulls out his sword not to go grab prisoners, but to kill himself. He's going to kill himself because he knows that... They're not going to buy the fact that all the shackles just fell off these people's hands and they ran out of the door. So he says, I'm going to, I got to, this is it. This is it for me. I'm done. 
Um, so he's going to kill himself. And Paul yells at him because nobody went anywhere. They just sat in the cells, which is strange. It doesn't say why. They just sat there. Maybe they're waiting on him to wake up so they get permission to go. Um, but he wakes up and, and they say, hey, don't stop. Don't kill yourself. We're all sitting right here. Nobody's gone anywhere. And he's like, why don't you tell me about this message that, that you've been talk, singing about, talking about? Why are you here? Who are you? And he eventually accepts the gospel and says, why don't you, why don't you come to my house? I'm going to take you to my house. Why don't you talk to my family about this? Uh, and, and he ends up hosting him. Like his whole family gets saved. Uh, he actually ends up being very nice to them. It says that he cleaned, he cleaned their wounds, which... That must have meant, I, I just think of like how hard it must have been for Paul because he gets like stripped and beaten and thrown in prison and now he's got like infections and stuff, I assume, uh, because he, he's talking about taking him into, into his house and trying to clean out all these wounds. So that's gross. Um, but Paul's happy in the whole thing. He's still singing. Um, and, and then the magistrates come back up because they're like, what is going on here? Why are you out of prison at this man's house? They said, you know what, why don't you just leave? And Paul says, I'm not going anywhere because I'm a Roman citizen and you've unlawfully done this to me. And they freak out and they say, you know what, we're sorry. Why don't you just get out of town? Why don't you just leave? Uh, so that, that's kind of paraphrase. You can read about that in Acts 16 if you want to see the whole thing. Um, but they, they leave from Philippi. Having all that just happened, their next stop is Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Thessalonica. The Thessalonians. Uh, so they travel then to Thessalonica. So uh, we can read about that in Acts because that gives us a little bit of background as to kind of what happened there. So if you want to, we'll, we'll actually read this part. Acts 17. Let's see if I can help myself here. And it's the first few verses. Verses 1 through 9 of Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, he was hosting them, seeking to bring them out, of the, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. They must have known what happened in Philippi, to some extent. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let me read a little bit further. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue to start over. So that's, that's kind of all we get in Acts related to Thessalonians. But a lot of people think that three weeks is not enough to tell this whole story. Um, because it, it talks about how he was in the synagogue for three weeks. But there's pretty good evidence that he was he was there for longer than that because he sets up this church he teaches them lots of things he's referring back to a lot of things when we get to Thessalonians and a lot of people are just saying how how would he have time to do all this in the span of three weeks it seems a little rushed uh, so we don't know exactly how long he was in Thessalonica but probably longer than just the three Sabbath days but he was teaching in the synagogue for three Sabbath days so they're in there, and, and something kind of similar to what happened in Philippi happens here. He starts preaching, people get upset, and they want to run him out of town. And he's getting a reputation at this point because they say, listen, he's turned the whole world upside down. He's going town to town, and now he's come down here. We have got to get rid of this guy. And their primary complaint is that he's preaching a, about another king, Jesus. Now, what is important about that is not just like they had this kind of political kind of um, 
servitude. They didn't. They didn't. They weren't just interested in the politics of this. Um, the Caesars actually set themselves up as deities, and so they they saw their political system is very much involved in their kind of religious life in their worship. And they had these other cults that they followed too, that if the Caesar wasn't worshiped, then they endorsed this other God. So when they say they're preaching about this other king, then this becomes like blasphemy to them. And it becomes this big deal issue that uh, won't be tolerated by the government and, and won't be tolerated by them. So they want to throw them out of town. So they end up in the middle of the night leaving Thessalonica. That's all we really get from Acts. Um, but, but there's more to it that we get from the, from the letter to the Thessalonians. So let's turn back over to Thessalonians. Well, I will anyway. So they, they leave Thessalonica. They go on. They go on to other cities. They start other churches. Um, his ministry continues, but after he leaves, Paul continues to think about the church at Thessalonica, and, and he wants to go back and visit them, kind of like him and Barnabas were talking earlier. We ought to go back and encourage all these people, make sure that everybody's doing okay. He's, he thinks this about Thessalonica, the church there. He thinks, I want to go back and make sure that they're doing okay, but he's unable to. Due to various reasons. He's, he's being called forward to do ministry in other places. He's not able to go back like he wants to do to check on them. So what he ends up doing is he sends Timothy. Uh, I guess we didn't really talk about Timothy too much. He comes up along the way in Acts. Uh, and he joins Paul and Silas. So he was there with them in Thessalonica. So he says, Timothy, I can't go back there. You go back there. Make sure everybody's doing okay. And... And he goes, and he gets a report. He encourages them. He comes back to Paul, and he says, you know what? Things are actually pretty good down in Thessalonica. So Paul, even though he's heard this good news, he doesn't just say, okay, moving on. But he says, I still, I still wish that I could, I wish that I could be there with them. I wish that I could, I could help them grow. I wish that I could see them take these steps. And, and the reason that he writes this letter, both of these letters to the Thessalonians, is that he, he wants to encourage them. This is one of the most positive sets of letters in the New Testament. Um, it's, if you've read Corinthians, it's not much like Corinthians. Corinthians is just like, wow, you guys are screwed up. And here is a list of things that you need to know. Don't sleep with your mother-in-law or stuff like that. Um, or not mother-in-law, was it step? It was, it was messed up. We don't <laughs> With your relatives. Things like that were being told to the Corinthians. You don't see things like that here. Um, so he, he, he's not concerned primarily with, with fixing their wrongs as much as he is making sure that they are okay. That they are going to mature. That they're going to they're gonna be all right. And just in that thought by itself, that kind of struck me a little bit because Paul's attitude in this ministry is not like it's a job. And I feel like I see, we see this a lot in churches where you get these professionals in a church and when they're gone, it's like they never existed. Nobody knows about them. Nobody heard from them. The people who came and joined the church later, who's that person? Like, it seems like we pastors have this, have this mentality that once I'm done with this job, I'm moving on to the next job that's going to allow me to do ministry, positive now, or pay me, negative. Um, and, and that's not Paul's attitude at all. He cares for them. And he actually kind of compares himself to like a spiritual father to them. So I think that it's, it's good to have this kind of mindset, thinking about how he's, how he's treating them. He actually considers them his kids in a way. And he considers them like part of his legacy. Because he knows, and he talks about this with other churches, he knows when I stand in front of God and tell him what I did with my life, I'm going to be talking about you the way that I would talk about my kids 
and I'm accountable for you. And so I don't, I don't want to just say, there you go, see you later. He's not a deadbeat dad. He's, he's concerned. He, he wants to make sure that they're okay. And it hurts him to not be able to see them take those steps, to like grow up. Like he's actually, he expresses himself as though he is, he wishes deeply that he could be there. But he's called along to this other ministry to, to produce other churches and to serve the gospel, serve Christ. So he wants to be there, but he can't be. So instead, he's writing these letters. I think that it's just noteworthy for me, and maybe it's just because I'm in this role now, and I'm in this kind of pastoral role. Uh, it's noteworthy to see that kind of mentality for me. Um, and, and I hope that if I do move on, or if any of us move on, the leaders that are here you continue to have some concern for, for this legacy that I feel like has started now. We've built, we've started this church that previously did not exist. And, and that's, that's going to last into eternity. The fruit from that is going to last into eternity. And the people that are here, I ought to demonstrate for some concern for. Even if I'm not here. And... And I hope that you get that from us, from the elders. I hope that you, you get kind of this, this loving concern that wishes to see you mature and, and wishes to, to meet your spiritual needs. I hope that you're getting that from us. Um, and, and if you don't feel like you are, be, be honest and just come up to us and say, you know what, I don't really see you that way. Uh, and that's not the end-all, be-all to try to like, be this nurturing, like, yes, mom, sort of like, I'm going to give you whatever you want because you're my baby. That's not the point. It's just like be, being the one who, wants to, who is concerned for your growth. Uh, so I hope, I hope that you see that here. And I, I hope that you, know, you can pray for us and we'll pray for you guys as we do this. But I, I just think that that's noteworthy, that he, he has this attitude. And so he knows um, that they are undergoing persecution also. And he's going to talk about this a little bit in the letter. He knows that they are struggling, that their faith is costing them something. So part of this is just encouragement. He wants to give them some hope. And uh, this, this is helpful. And this is an area where I've, I've struggled. And I'm going to, Carla didn't know that I was going to, you know, provide an illustration here. But uh, talking about giving, giving people hope, this made me think of um, the fact that I'm not really good at this. Because times get tough for everybody, and that's just the case. And, and in, in marriage, and I think that this is true of girls in general, but it's definitely true of Carla, if not of all your other girls, so I won't stereotype you. Um, when things get hard... And when she wants to explain how all these things are hard, how, how all these things are, are difficult, and, and she brings that all to me, of course, and I think that this is just a guy-girl sort of thing, um, the guy wants to say, okay, you're giving me a list of problems, it's like, I'm going to add that to my to-do list, and, and I will try to take care of it for you. And that's, that's immediately what I always think, um, is, is, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll see what we can do to take care of that person, let's ki- kill that person. <laughs> I, I take it too far. It's like, not really, but we could at least entertain the thought and maybe that would be kind of therapeutic. Uh, that's not good advice. So I'm bad. I'm bad at this. It's like, I, I'm, I'm suffering right now and I need you to provide me with something, like some sort of hope because, because this is tough and I don't know what I'm going to do right now. And, and the church, he knows they are suffering for their faith. And he can't be there. And so what is he going to do to offer them some sort of hope? Part of the reason why I struggle or have struggled in the past is just because I don't like giving false promises. So when somebody says, just tell me that this is going to be great, I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> it's going to be hard and it's going to suck. Um, and that's kind of my mentality. Like, I'm just very realistic, I guess. And, and I have a hard time offering hope when I'm thinking... It's just going to be hard. And it's not going to get much better. 
in terms of this, this very kind of short-sighted way. It's, it's historically how I've thought of things. But Paul, he knows that they're struggling, and he knows that they need encouragement, and that he knows that they need to mature, and he's going to send them some hope in addition to just encouragement. And so what, what stuck out to me is that he's providing them with this kind of eternal hope that is not, it's not a lie. It's not a falsehood. And that's, that's something that I struggle with. I don't want to just tell you that everything's going to be okay so that you think that everything's going to be okay. Paul, when he's offering them hope, he is giving them the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to them. He's telling them, you've put your faith in Christ, and Christ is not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to leave you in your sufferings to just die and, and to, to, for nothing to ever get better. He's going to give you an eternal hope. So he's giving them true promises, and he's encouraging them with this long-term eternal hope. So... Those things stick out to me. And, and he talks about, he has this eternal kind of mindset. And, I, and this is one of the reasons we, we wanted to start talking about Thessalonians, because of its kind of, I'm going to use a big word. We could say end times focus, eschatological focus. Like he's thinking about the, uh, the end. What's going to happen at the end of the world? That's what Paul's mindset is. He's like, I'm going to encourage you not to tell you that, hey, maybe you won't get beat up today. Or to tell you that you're going to have a great job and you're going to make lots of money. That's not his promise. Or that it's not going to be hard. He doesn't say things like that. He says, long term, Jesus has got this. And that's, that's his mentality. That's what he wants to point to. And, and that's part of the reason why we wanted to start talking about Thessalonians. Because I don't know if you pay attention to the news at all, but there's just a lot of hard things going on these days. I don't, it, probably the world has always been like this, but now it seems like we know about everything because we have the internet, we have media, we have all this stuff. So we, we know now that within the last couple of weeks, months, volcanoes have erupted, trapping people on mountains, that earthquakes in Nepal have just ravaged that city and killed thousands of people, that there is a very militant, very aggressive, active force in the Middle East that is just systematically going through killing people, wiping out villages, doing horrible things, and glorifying it, publicizing it, letting everybody know about it, and they're bullying everybody else and saying, you're next, every one of you, you're next. And we have social unrest here, in our own country, you hear about all these riots that are happening around the nation. And it's just like, everything is a mess. Everything is a mess. And if you think about it too much, without any kind of hope, you're going to get depressed. It's hard stuff. It weighs on your heart. And it's, it's not easy to live in light of those realities. And so, Paul, in writing this letter, he's not, he's not trying to say, oh, you know, tomorrow's going to be better. You know, if you just go to bed, wake up tomorrow, things are going to be great. He recognizes that things are hard, but he says, listen, our hope is not for right now. It's eternal. It's in Christ. And we know that Christ is already one. And, and you can have Faith in that. Faith in that he has already secured his promises. He's faithful to do what he says he's going to do. So you just keep going. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep putting your faith in Christ. And he's going to work everything out. So he's able to give them this real hope in the midst of all of this mess. The fact that they are actually physically harmed by this faith, or, or as a result of putting their faith in Christ, he, he sets their eyes further on Jesus. So, all right, enough talking about uh, pre-Thessalonian stuff. Let's actually read Thessalonians. So, we're going to read the first chapter, which is just ten verses. And we'll look through those. So, Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, 
and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, in this first section, this is kind of this is just kind of like an extended intro for him. He's talking about the uh, what's happened, and and here let's get caught up on what happened, and before he gets into the the body of this letter. And I was a little, I was wondering what what should I talk about here because, and and that's always what happens. You look at a verse or a set of verses the first time, and you're like, huh, pretty straightforward. But the more you look at it, of course, there's the more you can kind of pull out ideas. He really gets into exhortation in chapter four which is a long way, um, like just direct kind of, here's what you need to do, um, which those are the easiest things to preach when Paul just says, here's what you need to do. And then I stand up here and say, yeah, Paul says, here's what you need to do. Um, but in sections like this, you, you have to dig a little deeper. So Silvanus, who's that? That's Silas. Uh, Silvanus is likely the Latinized version of his name, and Silas is the Greek version. So in uh, Luke, uh, in, in uh, Acts, we see it as Silas, but here we see it as Silvanus. So that is Silas. That's his, his uh, partner in ministry and Timothy. They all went to Thessalonica with them. And so they're all writing this letter together with Paul. Um, it's thought that there's enough of um, first person uh, from Paul in the letter that they think he's probably the one that wrote it. But he's sending greetings along because they, they have this relationship with Silas and Timothy. They know that they were there. They started the church. They're continuing in ministry with Paul. So it's kind of like, hey... Greetings to you from the guys who planted your church is, is pretty much uh, the idea. And, and he's wanting to let them know that they're all thinking about them. They're, they're all praying for them. And that's the first thing that kind of stuck out to me. Um, we could talk about other technical things. But the first thing in verse 2 that stuck out to me is that he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. I think that that's just interesting in and of itself. Um, when you kind of look at your own prayer life and you say, what kind of things do I pray about? Uh, am I the kind of person who just like, I only go to God every time I need something. Uh, God, I'm real hungry. Please bring me some lunch. <laughs> like sort of like short term kind of, I need this, I need that sort of attitude. Uh, or, or do you, you praise God for who he is? Do you thank God for what he's done? You get this idea that you've got Paul, Timothy, and Silas all praying for this church, continuing to pray for this church. And not just like, not that, please God, don't let this church get messed up because then that would make us look bad. It's like, they're not just praying for, for help. They're thanking God for this church. Thanking God for that opportunity to be involved in that ministry and for the reception that they had there, the fact that there were new believers that, that now exist as a result of this ministry, they, they talk about how they're always thanking God, constantly mentioning them. And I feel like that, that speaks to somebody like me who sometimes is more concerned with what's going on today than who God is and what God has done in the past. You're, when, when you devote some time to thinking about what God has already done, who he is, then, then that really 
it paints a picture for you that, that God is going to be faithful to do what he says he's going to do in the future. And that kind of gets your mind right. Whereas it's not all about me and what's going on today and I'm struggling with this. But more looking back to, to what God has done in the past. So, so they look back at the Thessalonian church and they're just really, really happy. They're really, really thankful. They have gratitude to God because they, they followed his word. They went out and they did ministry and God did something with it. And, he's, and they're able to look back at that and say, look, God, God has done something. That means that he can continue to do things through us. And, and I know that that's just, you know, taking one little thing out of there where he's not specifically telling us, you ought to always thank God for yourselves. Um, but, but I feel like it's worth kind of getting to his mindset there. And, and just the idea that we ought to be thankful in our prayers when we come before God. Not just always using him like a pinata. Uh, and trying to get things from him. Like, I'm going to go to you, pray, hopefully get something. So <clears throat> they're thanking God for this church. He says, verse 3, We remember you before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, and some other commentaries that I was reading pointed this out, that when he's commending them for good things, what is he talking about? Does he say your faith? A lot of people think that Paul is like the gospel of faith. And then James is the gospel of works. And, and, and you've got these two competing ideas where one is saying, hey, you need to do some work. And then Paul is always the guy saying, if you just put your faith in Jesus. It's interesting here that Paul says, when he's commending these people, he says, we remember your work of faith. So this work stemming from this faith. And your labor of love and your hope in Christ. So pointing these things out, he's saying that not only did they sit there and say, yeah, we believe Jesus, but they were changed by it in a way that led to them doing something about it. And he points that out and he commends that of them saying, yeah, your faith, your, your work that came from that faith is commendable. And so for us, you know, that's its own sermon, faith and works. Um, we ought to know that true faith, true commendable faith, is, is more than just mental assent. Like, yeah, I believe that. And then you kind of sit there and don't do anything. Like, you, you actually are moved to action. You work out your faith. So we see that here. He says, we know, brothers, loved by God. Those two, those two things also stuck out to me. Brothers loved by God. Um, I don't know how much you know about the New Testament, um, but just the fact that he's able to say brothers is a big deal, and I don't think that you should kind of um, just assume the meaning of that and move on. We ought to feel the whole, the whole weight of him being able to say brothers. And we've talked about this, I feel like, or I, I remember when we were in Hebrews, we talked about this. Just the idea that him being able to address us as brothers. It's not, he's, not saying, he's not addressing like some hillbilly church filled with one big family of brothers. Like literally, that's not what's being said here. Um, and he's, he's, he's talking about this family of God. And, and this is adopted from language that even Jesus used. And Jesus said, you ought to address God as he is your father. Which is a big idea. It's like, really, that seems kind of personal. We like to maintain some distance he said, no, he's your father, and you need to think of him this way. And, and Christ is spoken of as the son of God. And he talks about Christians as being adopted into the family of God, adopted into the inheritance of Christ. And so when he calls them brothers, it's not just some, like, guys. Like, this, this is a word with a lot of weight, a lot of background. He's, he's talking about how they are, they are one in the family of God, and how they've been brought together that way because of what Christ has done and even more significant well not more significant but for Paul specifically Paul is a Jew right he's a Pharisee and and he's he's talking now to this church which is primarily filled with Gentiles and he's calling them brothers so one of the things that Paul that is just throughout the New Testament is just this idea of Christian unity the fact that we were separate people. We were the Israelites and the Gentiles, but now we're brothers in Christ. 
and we're, we're all in this together. We're in one family. So that, that is significant. That, again, that could be its own sermon. But, but don't skip over those sorts of things. And he says, brothers loved by God. Doesn't it, when, when you're in the midst of persecution, when you're in the midst of hard times, you just want to hear some sort of affirmation that something is okay, right? That, that something is going well. And they're struggling. He says you, later, you, you received this in much affliction. And we know that they're continuing to be afflicted. You, you just want to know that everything's okay. So the way that he addresses them, for we know brothers loved by God. I think that if you're, if you're in that situation where you're just struggling and you're like, can I believe this? Is this okay? Am, am I, is my life what it needs to be? When, when you get somebody like Paul, somebody who's interacted with Jesus face to face and has... And is an apostle. He's, he's worked signs and wonders. He is a messenger from God. When you hear somebody like that addressing you as, you are my brothers, you are loved by God. If you're in that kind of pain, I feel like just hearing that is uplifting. To be able to, to, to get that kind of that affirmation, that kind of affectionate talk that says, we're brothers in this, we're family and God loves you. I feel like hearing something like that from a person like Paul in that kind of situation is, is needed. It's, it's, and, it, and it helps them. He, he says, God has chosen you, further into verse 4. He's chosen you. We know that because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. A couple of people read that different ways. Um, when I first read that, I assumed that what that meant was, and maybe this is just because of my background, my theological upbringing, um, I assumed that that meant that uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring them to faith. That was my assumption reading that. Um, and some people say, yeah, absolutely, that's what that means. Because Greek words. Um, and then... <laughs> That's as far as I'll go with you. Um, But then other people say, no, he obviously means that he not only preached the word to them, but that he also performed some sort of miracles. And it doesn't seem ridiculous to think that at all. It doesn't say that specifically, but um, the power that accompanied that message could have been that he performed some sort of sign in front of them, which was common. Uh, Romans 15, 18 talks about how um, Paul did that sort of thing in his ministry. So... It doesn't seem crazy to say, yeah, maybe that's the case. So I don't know if we can say absolutely for certain this is what happened, but it seems fair either one, so I'm not like, going to fight over that with anybody. Um, but obviously, the Holy Spirit is working in them, and Paul, the message that he brought to them had effect. More than just words in the air that people said, yeah, okay, and then move on. It had an effect on them. And... And it was with full conviction. I, I struggle to think of whether that means like Paul's conviction or their conviction. Probably both. Paul spoke in a way that was like with authority. That the Holy Spirit gave him. He preached a message like when Christ preached. And they said, this guy preaches as though he has authority. Not like some other guy just getting up here, like probably like me. Reading this, reading this thing and, and saying, alright, done. Um, but he preaches as a guy who, who is being given a message by God. So that could be the situation here where Paul is preaching with this conviction or could relate to the fact that they were convicted. I think, again, pro- maybe, probably both. Um, but the point is that when, when they brought the message to them, they received it. It wasn't like in some places where Paul had to sit around for, and, and preach for a long time before it got into anybody's head. The Holy Spirit worked there. And, and people were moved to accept the gospel. And he said, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Again, that's really encouraging. You've become imitators of Christ. When you're being told, follow Christ, trust Christ. He's saying you've become imitators of him. 
For you received the word in much affliction. Part of them being imitators is the fact that they are now willing to, willing to follow Christ, willing to accept this message and live it out to the point that they are okay with suffering. They're okay with submitting to that. And that is, that's part of that imitation. And it's an evidence that God has chosen them, that the Holy Spirit has worked in them, that now they are living a kind of life that, that they are willing to even do this. And I think that at that point in time, maybe you start asking yourself, is that, is that me? Am I the kind of person that, that accepts this gospel in mind only? Or am I the kind of person who would actually suffer something because of this no matter how little how big and not only did they suffer it it says later in verse 6 with the joy of the holy spirit so not only were they suffering but they had this kind of inexplicable joy it's like you know what yeah we're getting beat up we're getting thrown in prison they're taking our jobs away but it's okay i'm okay with this and and for me this is this is probably where I feel like maybe the most potential for exhortation kind of gets extracted out of here. You get this example from these people who heard the message and were so moved by it that they were willing to lay things down. And, and then he goes on through here to talk about how that message of them accepting that and being willing to be afflicted and, and receiving this gospel has, has made such an impact that now the witness of that church is just like through word of mouth spreading to the rest of the world. So that when Paul goes and talks about his ministry to other people, they're like, yeah, we know about, let, let me tell you about the Thessalonians. Because they heard what happened. <clears throat> so, but this, there's this word of mouth, kind of this excited, <coughs> natural, organic spreading of this message because of the way that they've lived. And I think that there's something to it related to their receiving this message in affliction. Because what kind of witness do you think, uh, or what, what kind of power do you think is behind your witness? If somebody says something to you like, listen, I know you're a Christian. I know it means a whole lot to you. But while you're at work, do not talk about it. Or repercussions are going to have to happen. We will have to let you go. When you hear something like that, when you, when you hear that and you say, all right, I'll never talk about it, then essentially that is a communicating your value system. This job is worth more to me than this witness. And when everybody sees that, they're like, yeah, we thought so. It's not worth that much. But the person who says, you know what, this is worth so much that I'm going to tell people about it and you can fire me or you can do whatever, but it's fine because this is worth it. Now somebody says, okay, that's a message. You're telling me that what you have is more valuable than all these other things. And we've got this whole city full of people that are joining this church to their own affliction because the government won't have anything to do with it. Um, back then, you had uh, a, a lot of kind of cultic practices were built into everyday life. So even uh, like masons, if, if they wanted to work a job for the city, then they had part of their, their work included offering things to these cultic deities and things like that. So if you stepped into the job that day and said, listen, I will no longer be a part of this cultic experience which is just tied into your everyday kind of life then they say well you can't work with us anymore so you go work on your own and now if you're a contractor you can't get those projects anymore because people like you're not a part of the licensed you know uh back city backed group of workers you are on your own now so now you, you've got to say, well, I'm going to trust God that he can use me to use this skill set to do what I need to do so that he's going to provide for me. That's the kind of reality that they're living in. So if they, if they pronounce Christ as king, then what they're saying is Caesar is not the ultimate authority. These government officials are not the ultimate authority. And now people don't want to associate with them anymore. So 
from that example, can we say that we're those kind of people that, that so value the message of the gospel, that so value the gospel in our lives, that when somebody says, listen, you've got a choice to make. It's two, one or the other. You can either live out this gospel the way you think you ought to, or you can do what we tell you to and, and not talk about that stuff, not, not go around telling people about that, not praying uh, in, a, in a public way or, or doing, doing anything that's going to distract from what we're doing. When you approach that situation and, and you say, yeah, whatever, I'll submit to whatever you say, I think that that really does communicate that it's really not worth that much to you. So he goes on and tells them how this, this message has moved not just them, but now it's moving other places. And I feel like if we want to be evangelistic, then, then people have to hear the message that you are preaching and see some sort of evidence that it's really done anything for you. Because if it's just like, you know, just, just call yourself a Christian, keep doing what you're doing. If that's the way that we kind of present Christianity, then what's the point? It doesn't make any sense. But when it comes with this kind of conviction, then, then other people start to notice and say, okay, now you're actually preaching something else. So he says, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. So this is where a lot of people think that they were probably a Gentile audience because a Jew audience, he wouldn't have said, uh, you turned to God from idols because Jews already submitted to God. Um, so they turned from these idols. They serve the living and true God. And now he's giving them their hope. This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to continue to do. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there's actually a lot of little things in here that point to things that he's going to elaborate further on in this book. Um, eschatology, this, this end times kind of mentality being one of them. But... I hope that just seeing even this intro, we get like, we can take these ideas that aren't exactly prescriptive. He's not saying, here, do this, like he does later on in the letter. But he's, he's given this, this kind of picture of what gospel living looks like, what living like the church looks like, what evangelism ought to look like, and what hope in Christ ought to look like in the midst of hard things. He's not saying, maybe one day you won't get beat up. He's saying, Christ has already conquered this. And because of what Christ has done, he's going he's gonna to come back and he's going to rescue all those who had faith in him. He's going to be that king that is promised in the Old Testament. He's going to reign and he's going to avenge all... He, he's going to judge the world in their sin but he's saying your hope is in christ and that being the case you don't have to be worried ultimately about that the way the world does and so he's given them this eternal hope which ought to be our hope enough talking i'm gonna go ahead and pray <clears throat> Father God, <clears throat> thank you for Paul and for his, his ministry, his message. Thank you for the Thessalonian church. Thank you that even now we're able to talk about the way the gospel affected their life. That's kind of crazy. We're 2,000 years separated from these people, and we're still talking about the way that you worked in their hearts and in their life. That's incredible. I pray that you would so work in us as individuals and as a church that other people would take notice. And I pray that you'd reorient our priorities so that we would be able to say, yeah, you can take things away from me. That's fine because ultimately Christ is what matters. I pray that we would have that mentality and that that would speak volumes. 
us. I pray that the people who are in here that maybe don't see Christ as ultimately valuable, I pray that they would see people laying down their lives and see people giving things away and submitting to Christ. And I pray that 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 message, that unity in the church, where before there was a bunch of people that hated each other, but now this family that God created, I pray that they would see all those evidences as practical kind of outworkings of of your power and your will in the world, and they would and they would see Christ as valuable, as as more than just words on a page or a guy that lived a long time ago, but as exactly who he says he is. I pray that during this time we would be filled with thanks and joy, and and confidence in what you've done. And I pray that as we read through Thessalonians, going through the next several weeks, months, that you would continue to teach us about yourself and your word and and continue to mature us. We don't have Paul, but we have something better. We've We've got you, our Heavenly Father, who is infinitely more concerned for our growth and infinitely more loving toward us than any number of Paul's. And so I pray that for those of us who are struggling, that we would feel that affection and that we would, we would feel that affirmation that, that it's okay to put your faith in Christ and it's okay when it looks like your situation is just laughable because ultimately Christ is what matters. Be in our music, be in our conversation this, this, this afternoon, God, and in Jesus' name.